This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Science.ai, which is a new tool that helps researchers quickly see how a research paper has been cited and if it's been supported or disputed by subsequent research. As an Everything Hurts listener, you can get 30% off their premium package for 12 months, which gives you access to unlimited reports and reference checks. Use the coupon code HERTZ, H-E-R-T-Z, to claim this offer. It's interesting to think about that at some point in time you could do something that was completely wrong. And the point where people don't use the information anymore essentially means that it's irrelevant. I, I wonder what's hidden in all that. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana. I am from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers from Cypherskin. James, I want to start off this episode. I'm springing this on you completely. I'm going to start this episode with a little game. Are you ready? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Excellent. This, Excite me. Excite me with game, your beauty face. Go. This game go, is called Overrated, go. Underrated, or Appropriately Rated. I'm going to throw out some some things, yeah? Wow. And, and you're going to tell me whether you think they're overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Yeah. Are you engaging with ideas now? Yeah. This is This is different. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. And all systems go. All lights green, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're free to say, to give the answer, or you can do a quick, like, one or two. This is, this is almost quick fire. You can do a quick elaboration if you want. But this this is a this is a, a, a quick game, yeah. So you can I just, love it when you mug me with stuff. Yeah, I know you love it. This is your thing. Great. Okay. Good man. Okay. Go. Let's get started. Okay. Getting a conference speaking invitation. Overrated. Okay. Stout beer. Appropriately rated. LinkedIn. Definitely underrated. Okay. Expand. Um. I have found, even through my limited experience of writing on it, uh, that things have a tendency to go broader than you expect. Uh, people that you don't see can write uh, write to you, and the quality of what people want to talk about, especially if it's uh, formal business-related stuff, like I get random messages from people, um, other scientists, authors, sometimes it's people selling stuff, but that's okay because sometimes we buy enterprise stuff and uh, some salespeople are good at finding people who want to buy their stuff. So I've obviously had to use it more in the last six months and probably becoming the least annoying uh, social platform for me. Uh, I still don't use it as much as I'd like, but I have a job. You were, you, you were saying that with your business hat on. What about for the average academic? Um, well, like everything else, it, it takes – I mean, everything is – a knife is useless without anyone to stab, Daniel. <laughs> um, you have to curate what's on it reasonably carefully. There are people who put interesting things that are on it all the time. And I have tried to curate the things that I see and read, obviously. Some of it is – facile crap and there's a higher proportion of facile crap in business versus everything else but uh, a lot of the time for instance like this morning I got my retraction watch news through LinkedIn mm. because everything's cross-posted so I wouldn't say that was a, a business function at all then there's, there's some academics who use it but especially if you're I mean if you're looking for external funding if you're trying to meet people if you're trying to network 
Um, I think there's value there that people have overlooked because it's this NAF business-centric environment. Yeah, I, I found the same thing, that it is, is not- is that, is that all the questions? No, no, no there's, there's plenty more, but I, I think it's interesting. Oh, I think okay, go. this is, it, it. it's not annoying. It's weird. Like using it, I'm like, I'm not annoyed using this. Like I'm annoyed using other social networks, but I, I th- maybe I think it's the fact that- by. No, no, it, it, it hasn't been because it kind of can't be. And it's not really a matter of like, I need to be on my best behavior. I rarely am. It's just the fact that you want to add people who you think are interesting and sometimes senior and sometimes have good insight into this sort of passive network. But that's what Twitter used so to be. So you're, you're not, yeah, I suppose. But I mean, everything that I see go really big. It's never anything particularly snarky. Sometimes it's funny, but usually it's it's a little bit more anodyne. Look, I can I can find I can I can I can do my own mean spirited jokes at other people's expense. I don't need that from social media things a lot of the time, and I'm hugely pissed off with the rest of it right now because everything is so incredibly awful all the time. So I mean it it's it's a it's a chore. You open something up, something else is on fire. Like this is, I'm, I'm not really much one for. I mean, usually I'm annoyed at things more than apathetic about them. But I mean, the just the magnitude of horrors recently is mm. pushing me towards the apathy. Maybe that's part of why, like LinkedIn is walled off from all of that because like a lot of the time people are there to share information that at the very least a lot of the time is job adjacent. Okay. And, you know, I'm trying to learn to do my new one. So maybe that's it. Maybe go. in six months I'll hate it. LinkedIn. But right now, underrated. There you go. Okay. Let's keep going. Um, email newsletters. Couldn't give a fuck. Appropriately rated. Okay. Graphical abstracts for papers. I think underutilized, underexplored. I think they're long run. You ever done one? Under underrated. Never had the chance. Okay. Look, uh data and graphical visualization is a skill. One of those many, many skills they expect you to pick up sort of by <laughs> osmosis because you touched some books somewhere. Um it doesn't really work like that. There's a, a reason that Whenever, uh, you know, someone who does a job like mine, even vaguely, even I mean, tenuously like mine, you know, what something like that, you, you, you get a, a designer, not an expensive one, just one who's immediately available through a dozen posts. I mean, the same thing that we did for the podcast art. Yeah. You do that. So, you know, trying to, it's, it's a very difficult bow to draw yourself. Um, but I, I think eventually, especially if, um, Especially if you have the the facility to get someone to help you with that, yeah, um, super useful. I find myself because in, I'm in such a hurry a lot of the time, rebelling against turgid language or even too much appropriate and clear language. Um, sometimes you know, <laughs> sometimes I need my pretty pictures. Keep going. Okay, uh, online conferences. 
I still think they are underrated. Okay. Because there is some there your ability to increase access, your ability to organize them, uh your ability to get people to participate in them. It's still because we have such a rigid idea of what a conference is. Like I mean, we could have could have been doing this the whole time. You could have had like one one enormous meeting every two years and six monthly like top up meetings. It's very easy. To, I mean, easy to get the right people, easy to get the right digital space, easy to do the right kind of stuff. Now, can you meet people and go around and press the flesh and do a thing? There's still like let's not pretend somehow that the the academic embrace of digital resources is somehow modern. Like in in general, it's it's still reasonably archaic. So I think they have a long way left to evolve, uh, and there's lots of possibilities that are just waiting for the right motivated people to start exploring them. I reckon the whole hybrid thing could be interesting in the future because at least this mm. is demonstrated. It's the same sort of thing companies in the past few years have been saying when staff have been saying, oh, I want to work remotely. Oh, we can't do it. We can't do it. And when they have to, all, all of a sudden they can. Same sort of thing with yeah. conferences. Now we can say, oh, we can actually do this thing and present information people can get together. And so I kind of I hope for the future that uh, there's a lot more of these hybrid conferences where um, they can just set up a video stream of, of the talks. People can post the posters online. Um, I mean, I mean, for me, like I can't see myself doing long trips for the next five years because of my kids. Being away from my kids for more than like European conferences, fine. I can go one, two nights. But a US conference um, or Australia or wherever is a massive commitment. So if there was the option for hybrid, that would make my life a lot easier. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the same boat as me. Dan, I already said conference talks were overrated. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Method- Preach into the choir. <laughs> Un- uh. Unlimited word counts for papers. Hugely underrated. So you're, you're just you- go as long as you want. No. All you really need to do is make sure that the information is appropriately organized. The longer it runs, the less audience you have for individual pieces and sections and subheads and whatever else. Write a paper, leave everything else that is the, like, the, the places where even the genuine insight might be. Yeah? Hmm. Wall that shit off. Don't even call it a supplementary thing. Just, like, sidebar it, mash it in. Don't write one document that people have to read. This, I mean, I would be in favor of 1,500-word uh, papers with an attached, similarly formatted, easily accessible supplementary section. The idea of making it a separate downloadable document, et cetera, et cetera, and not being a digital resource is stupid. Um, I really like this thing. There's no – we're never going to run out of space. And when you're looking for one specific detail, if you have the details to give away, why the fuck – I mean, it's all you're talking about is does it interrupt the flow of the main document? No. Then you can have as much as you'd like. The whole push towards brevity was a real, like in the bad days of psychological science or the continuing bad That's days still of ANAS. Yes. And it cripples the presentation of data and arguments. It's stupid. People who thought it was a good idea are stupid too. I like how some journals do this, these box, these text box things, because it's a good way of actually saying, um, hmm. this yeah. is, it, it's a sidebar essentially, or if there's a concept you want to explain quite clearly, or, uh, I, I quite like this idea 
And we we got to do this with our our podcast paper. We had two little two little boxes in there where we could actually yes. explain something which is a bit separate, and it is a really good feature. It kind of like what uh, Michael Eisen suggested that um, journal should have a feature where you can just speculate wildly. I'd love that. Have a box going. Here, here's what I think, and I think the the trends journals do have this thing where you say, um, few, like, here are some wild hypotheses or some wild predictions based on what what I've said here. I, I think I think it's good. Hmm. Let the people speak okay. about it. All right, let's continue. A, f- a few more to go. Um, oh, wow. you come prepared. <laughs> Slack. Slack. Uh, appropriately rated. Okay. It's hit its zenith now where there's uh, competing products that are in the same space that have better integrations. Um, Teams drives me nuts, but I think the move between organizing information temporally uh, organizing information like procedurally or categorically uh, and the mix between different versions of communication is now better in Teams. What does your company um, use? Uh, teams. Okay. Um, I don't have a problem with any of these platforms, but I feel like Slack is behind when it comes to – I mean, the other day uh, I said with a guy, oh, I'm going to have a meeting. We're going to do this thing. Was a fellow I'd never met at a university. It just appeared on my team's calendar just because he had my uh, because he had my uh, company email address. And we said we we're going to meet at this this time, and it just propagated. There was no arguments about calendars or whatever else. I went into the meeting, and it was there. Yeah, the integration is great. Right, Super. Th- three more to go. Twitch, mm-hmm. the platform. Twitch. Um, still... Still underrated. Okay. Uh, sourdough bread. Hugely underrated. Okay. Okay. I know that hipsters and freaks and pe- people who uh, try and ruin everything are presently trying to ruin bread. That's fine. The thing is, though, it's gorgeous. It's one of the very nicest things. And to be able to control the process and produce it exactly right is enormously satisfying. And it's so many things that are good to eat start with good bread. I mean, I could see myself, honestly, I mean, I'd, I'd like to eat an entire pig, but I could see myself being a vegetarian or a vegan where it doesn't bother me on some kind of moral level. But the idea of going gluten-free makes me want to claw my eyes out. Last one. Special journal issues around a theme. Overrated. Okay. Why? Because they're insanely difficult to organize and you you, you want to have something that represents uh, an individual theme in its entirety. Um, but you end up with somewhere between, I suppose, five and 20 very specific niche subtopics within that is you're trying to increase the representation of the thing. It's not for the authors. It's not because someone picks up that uh, that that bound manuscript that has the 20 papers from back to back and reads all of it. It doesn't increase your visibility. It's for the people who are organizing it to increase the the name and the reach and the like to say they've done it, you know? A lot of people organize a special issue to go, I organized a special issue. Oh, fuck you. I organized an unspecial issue by putting preprints in the world, drinking a bunch of whiskey and trying to forget about them. Um, 
they don't do what they're intended to do anymore. They don't get delivered and then you get great discursive tracts from, you know, that one lady who's a genius who, who, who lays out the, the, the precise lay of the land through the topic of interest. You just end up with uh, uh, two things you want to read and 18 things that are slightly too far from what the central topic of interest is. Yeah. Unless it's incredibly niche, but it's never incredibly niche. They pick an umbrella that they, uh, the 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 editors and the organizers pick an umbrella that they want to be, be better represented for their own ends, and then they go around uh, asking people to contribute to it. Um, and the fact that they have timelines to organize this along as well. Someone may have just finished something. Someone else may have just started something. You may end up with a like a 12, 18-month delta between how all the, the topic things fit together. And then what are you supposed to do? Tell someone to wait a year before publishing something so it can go on your stupid special fucking issue? They never come with any extra kudos. It doesn't come, you know, you don't get free money. There's no bonus sex. <laughs> it's just shit that's vaguely related to each other in the same place to the benefit of the people who are trying to publicly represent it. Special issues can go fuck themselves. I think it doesn't work when you're dealing with experimental data. Because when do you ever have an experimental data and you're like, cool, this paper's ready to go. Oh, here's a special issue. Sometimes mm. I think it can work when you are dealing with just review topics. And I've seen a few. Looking at the names, I can see these are all mates. It's good because these people know each other's research very well. Bad because it's not very representative and you're not opening a pool. But some special issues- oh, It's not like it's utterly monocultural. I gave a special issue with six things and like five of the papers have common authors. Well, but they're, they're, they're why don't, authors, but honestly, they're all why mates. don't they just stand in a circle and jerk each other off? That's another way. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, it would be a lot quicker, probably harder to clean up. Um, but look, it's it, like like everything else. I feel like it's become a representative tool that serves the people who organize it, and for everyone else, it is some version of an inconvenience. Like if you were trying to if you're trying to get a topic started from scratch and you had something really new, maybe. But uh, I can't remember the last time. When's the last time you opened a special issue and read it like it was a book? Uh <laughs> this morning, which is why I was thinking about it. This was a special oh, up yours yeah. this morning. What the time before that? Yeah, before a, a very, a very long time. But we're actually oh, got yeah, a very fine. long time. What oh. got me thinking about this though is I got an invitation for a special issue from a let's call it a borderline predatory publisher. One of those pub not not frontiers. One of those publishers that sometimes you hear, oh, are they good or are they bad? And I saw they had a list of people that have already agreed to submit to this special issue. And one of them was actually quite a big name. And I didn't actually know whether they whether they've actually um agreed to this because it's such mm-hmm. a borderline predatory and, and we know stories of these um of these journals putting people on editorial boards who have never agreed. Of um, yeah. I, yeah, this happened. So I, I was <laughs> but here's the dilemma. Do I email them going, hey, did you did you put your name to this journal? And they're like, yeah. Like, okay, cool. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> right? Or email them going, hey, you, you, did you put your name to this journal? It's a predatory journal. So it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a weird spot. I don't even know them, but I know of them, but I don't even know them. Well, I'd write to them and say, I, I check my incoming, uh, I, I check incoming claims that are about things like this. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure this is accurate and you're involved um, because- I, I get a lot of spam. Yeah. And I thought that you would want to know if you want. Um, I have no reason to suspect that, but yeah, I thought I'm thinking here it. we are. Yeah. Just want to know. That's all. Thank you for your time.
No one's going to get offended unless they're weird. I don't know. They could be. They're 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 a big name in my field. Okay, that that, that is all for um this episode of overrated, underrated, and appropriately rated. Maybe we can we can bring this back again. Maybe you can ask me some questions in the next episode, James, for overrated, underrated. Oh, right. Okay. Um. No, no, not now. Next episode. We have oh, other plans. Okay. You, yes, yes, we 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 do, and that took uh the you know a shy side of fifteen minutes. So, um, well planned, Dan, as usual. Um, if you'd let me just say single words, we could have done the whole thing in 90 seconds. That's all right. It was interesting. Yeah, all right. that's fine. It's almost like it's our podcast or something. Like many researchers, Google Scholar is my first port of call when I'm looking for papers. But the issue with Google Scholar is that it places a high premium on the raw number of citations when it comes to its search rankings. This is a big problem, though, because not all citations are equal. What if many of these citations were disputing the original paper or just mentioning the paper in passing? Of course, you could read each of these citing papers, but that would take a lot of time. Fortunately, Cite.ai can do all this for you almost instantly. Utilizing deep learning, Cite can show you at a glance how a paper has been cited and specifically if it's been supported, disputed or merely mentioned. Cite.ai also shows the context of the citation from each paper. You can plug in a single paper or even a whole reference list, which is really handy for when you're reviewing or writing a paper. I recently installed their free browser plugin so that you can exactly see how a paper has been cited directly in Google Scholar or PubMed, Nature, eLife, and several other academic publishers. So check out the browser plugin. Have a look at Cite.ai for yourself, where you can generate five reports a month for free, which includes the context for each citation. If you want access to unlimited reports and reference checks, Cite.ai is offering 30% off their premium package for 12 months for Everything Hurts listeners. Just use the coupon code HURTS. That's H-E-R-T-Z. For more details, check out the show notes. What do you have planned for this podcast, James? This is your idea. This is this is my idea. I, my my favorite episodes maintain the spontaneity of you talking to me and me haranguing you mercilessly in return. Um, so we've done similar things like this before. But what I wanted to do was basically present preset recent thoughts in the complete absence of knowledge on the other side. Yeah. So we're seeing things for the first time that. You know, what has Dan really been thinking about that I've never been exposed to? And will it compel me to annoy him? And, of course, vice versa, although you're never annoying. You're too nice, prick. Maybe maybe you're wrong, though. Let's find out. Oh, I'm, I'm wrong quite a lot. I'm, I'm used to that. As my knees start to go and uh, I start to realize that I need glasses, I realize how incredibly wrong I am all the time. That's not going to stop me sounding off like a bull walrus with a hemorrhoid, but you know, onwards. Why don't you Let's kick do us yours. off? Oh, do you want to do mine? No, okay. no, 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 no. Actually, okay, okay. Um, we could we could absolutely do mine. Let's do it. Oh, okay. What is your idea? Well, I was thinking about this recently um, because of the the context of. 
how a lot of plague research is seen and received and how a lot of it's being turned over. The Traction Watch keeps a fairly accurate running update of how much COVID research has been spiked or removed. Um, I can't remember what the retraction count is now, but it's it's dozens, right? That all. Well, yeah, Dan, retraction, it's very hard to get retractions. People have to be sufficiently pissed off to be able to do it. There's, there's not a lot of proactive retraction, right? Mm. There's only the active version where people pop out into the landscape and start demanding it themselves, right? Now, as you're well aware, way back in the day, Hunt Isink used to work for King's College London, right? I'm sure you saw that. Mm. Um, and there's been a fuss that has gone on in dribs and drabs for decades, actually. Decades about whether or not a lot of his work, especially the work that crosses over with the tobacco industry and type A personality and whether or not it causes cancer, a lot of his work has always been questionable. And there are some extremely eye-opening papers that are decades old about how incredibly bad some of it was with the, um, the, the, uh, his collaboration with Grossarth Maticek. I'm probably not saying that correctly. So this morning, I've been thinking about, thinking about this for some time. I was asked for initial comment on it back in the day, and I was thinking about it again this morning. Um, a paper from 1990 was retracted. Now, you and everyone who's probably going to hear this is well aware that I am strongly in favor of retracting things. I have tried to get things retracted a lot, um, sometimes more successfully than others. Occasionally tried to retract a few people, which is all in good fun. And I'm wondering about where scientific knowledge becomes historical knowledge. Do we need to retract a paper from 1990. And there's a series of interesting interlocking concerns about whether or not we need to bother doing shit like that in the first place. So let's run it the whole way back to the kind of reductio ad absurdium space and then run it in. Ptolemy was wrong about the movement of celestial Oh, we're, we're going way back. Right, Yes. Do so. We we regard this as you know. People looked up and saw movie shit happening in the sky. Look, it's movie. Um, and then we get through what I suppose is about the 16th century, and they realise that um that heliocentrism is real. And there's it, this knowledge does not in any way exist in the space where we think about. I mean, it is published scientific knowledge. These works right now are published by someone, but obviously it's monstrous, monstrously weird to think about <laughs> removing it from the scientific discourse no, 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 but, but think- because it's part of an important historical record. So let's, let's run that a little bit further forward and think about some early physiology that was like way off in uh, the later part of the 19th century. Now, we're starting to get into the territory where things might be cited in the introduction of a paper to signify that a a field was founded or an interest was created, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've always had a great fondness for um, 
papers that are more than 50, 60 years old. Um, the simplicity, the clarity of language, the kind of actual, when discovery was a little bit easier, you just open some fucker with a crowbar and poke around a bit and found something no one ever seen before. Cool, good fun. Uh, very jealous in a way that they got to do the work and then, um, and then make observations that immediately became useful. But so now we're, we're getting into a territory where it's still very obviously historical knowledge and we know far more about uh, the field than the authors would have in, say, 1860, 1870. And now the objects are cited. They're not cited to say this represents an accurate body of modern knowledge. They're cited to say this is the historical antecedent to us caring about what's in this paper. Again, fucking pointless thinking about retracting that shit. Even if it's dead wrong. Even if we go back and it's like it, it's like it's like Mendel where we think, did he fit all those experiments? It's a historical interest question. Who gives a shit? We start to run it a little bit further forward. We think about things that happened in the early 20th century. Now, these may be cited as things that are more foundational and have their ideas explained when we think about modern scientific knowledge. And it's likely, though, that the authors would be dead. So there is no one who can suffer a reputational loss. It doesn't mean anything to, I mean, these people have been ground for years. It's just a grinning skull somewhere uh, in a reasonably well-maintained garden, probably in somewhere weird like Coventry. I don't even know where that is. Coventry listeners. Yeah, I don't know anything about it. Please don't write to me. Um, so... Again, we don't think about, I mean, if something, if something like that has an error, we, could, we can explain it uh, in the body of the paper and still cite it and not have any reflection on the nature of the error itself. And then we can spin it all the way up to Hans Isaac and uh, uh, Isaac. What was that? Uh, all those uh, consonants being smashed together always did my tongue in. And then we have, you know, things that are, I suppose, probably published somewhere between sort of, I think, 1970 to about 2000, where it's it's almost definitely superseded by something. But it's still citable, especially if you're in a maybe a less complex or less rigorous field. Uh, maybe if you're writing something that's in some way qualitative. I don't mean qualitative research. I mean that you're just having an opinion and people are publishing it. Go and look at some of the theoretical areas to find out which is what fucking drivel people can talk and they just publish. Now, the authors the authors on that paper, I think that that, that paper this morning was Isink and Grossas Uh I believe he does not agree with the retraction. <laughs> what was the, the context of this particular paper? Do you remember? We can, we can post to it. I, I saw I saw this come up as well on my feed, but I didn't actually read it. Uh, well, uh, it's yeah, as as per usual, it's like something like this. No one really expects you to go and read it. Um, it was in a Carga journal, which itself is a little bit unusual, um, and it was on coffee and personality. Okay, uh, as 
the the the, the causative factors behind uh, cancer and heart disease, right? Um, now, uh, it would oh, what is it? Neuropsychobiology. Oh shit! I knocked something off the table. Neuropsychobiology. Yeah, <laughs> putting a psycho in neuropsychobiology. He said breaking all his shit. So we 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 get to a very interesting point where. We, we have scientific knowledge, but it's not sufficiently current that we'd cite it as something that we'd want to immediately extend. But it's possible that it's citable. It exists, therefore, at a, there's a point in time where something doesn't exist as history. And it's really interesting to consider where that breakpoint is. Is the fact that at some point in time, it stops being living knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The other factor is what it actually does to the the author, alive or dead, and the kind of collective legacy. So presumably King's College feels like they have to apologize for something, um, you know, for essentially ignoring what has been a very long-running, like slow metastasizing accuracy cancer on their ass. They've just been vaguely interested for uh, the time where the research was associated with them as an institution. So there's this interesting aspect of that where you're, you're thinking about kind of redacting a legacy rather than directly affecting someone's reputation. So whether, whether or not there's kind of a meta-punitive aspect to retracting something that was written more than 30 years ago. And there's no good answer. There's no good answer to something like this. Like, where do you stop bothering? I mean, the the, the, the straightforward and facile answer is really, really easy. Like, when people stop citing it. <laughs> like, if no one's cited it in 10 years, why the fuck are you going to retract it? No one's, no one's treating it as something that they know. No one's reading it casually. And... One side point, and then I promise I'll shut up. People complain about this all the time. I go, oh, well, there's all this stuff. This, this thing was retracted. What about all this other terrible stuff? Well, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by osmosis. And getting people to kick up about something is a fact of whether or not they care. So there's a very, very strong correlation between whether or not people care about it in the first instance and whether it gets done. It's not a standard of accuracy. It's a standard of attention. And that's why there's so many COVID retractions that people have gone after. The immediate attention and obviously the influx of total dog shit that's turned up in a lot of areas. But also the necessity of it being accurate in the short term. Even now as we enter the kind of twilight years of the plague. Um, which if governments around the world could pull their fingers out of their ass, so we'd probably come a little bit faster. The sun could set a little bit quicker. Um, that's why. Hence the interest. It's interesting to think about that at some point in time you could do something that was completely wrong. And the point where people don't use the information anymore essentially means that it's irrelevant. I, I wonder what's hidden in all that historic that, that that historical body we didn't 
in you know this is not a, a generation of time right now we didn't invent shitty science um read the read, read the uh babbage book uh 1868 i think where he he literally describes forms of data manipulation that people use today and it's amazing it's amazing the f- the four types of of data manipulation that he identified. Got into a lot of trouble for writing that book. I mean, he was very annoyed with it. Um, you know, what would they do? I don't know what they did. Like knock his bowler hat off in the street, <laughs> challenge him to a duel, a duel like slap him with the with the yeah. with the glove. So I don't know if this is a particularly well formed thought, Daniel. I feel like I spent a very long time on it, not to come up to a, a conclusion, but. I, I I suppose maybe we could put a cap on it by saying there must be a barrier somewhere where you get to say this doesn't matter anymore unless there's some specific context that's relevant to it. This doesn't matter anymore that this is wrong or fake or ridiculous or clearly incorrect or so colossally incomplete that it's totally meaningless. There must be a tremendous relief for the shit scientists of the past to know that the kind of statue of limit statute of limitations <laughs> has has expired on their shit and that they're never going to get in trouble no one's ever going to ask for the money back no one's ever going to say there was regret like they they got away with it i would love to have computational ways to to look at all the great sins of the past and find out where they are where those things were buried we really could do so much more if we had digital access to everything that's uh, I mean, a lot of uh, journal archives, uh, at least they used to stop, um, usually somewhere between 1975 and 1990. Um, the records start to get very spotty before that, unless you're the Lancet or something where it goes back the until phys- like, well, th- some journals 4004 BC or some shit. Yeah. Um, and obviously, a lot of journals themselves are newer, but there's and there's plenty of archaic ones. I wonder where all those bodies are buried. It's like a puzzle. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons I was always interested in this in the first place is because it's like it's like it's like a human. It's a human and a mathematical puzzle. Like trying to figure out what went on here. You're like an air crash investigator, except no one pays you. I think it's going to become much easier these days because everything is digital. We have mo- most journals adhere to this um, clocks protocol where they they pay a certain they pay a certain amount of money, and it essentially guarantees that their papers and everything associated with the papers are going to be around for a long, long time. But look, I think you raised a few interesting things more around the idea of there is only so much time and resources you can put towards retracting stuff or going after of retractions course. so of we course. do have to choose what 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 we're going to retract and i think the decision of do we just let this sit in the past versus do should we actually bother retracting something from 1980 i think one really straightforward way of doing this is how are people actually citing this paper yeah you, you can't say oh people are still citing it, we need to retract it if every single citation was this is what people used to think 
we know this is wrong. Now people do this. <laughs> then, yeah. then, then you're fine. Yeah. That, thank yeah, thank you very much. In the 1930s, he's like, did you, did you know that this field started with a bunch of fake bullshit by this man? Like, yeah. Okay. We can probably leave it. But not, not all old stuff is, is, is wrong. Uh, one of the funniest things that I get when I'm writing psychophysiology papers is when I'm citing stuff from the 80s and a reviewer is like, why don't you cite something which is a bit more modern? And I'm like, why? This stuff what is- What the this stuff hell is, is that supposed to mean? Yeah, this stuff is correct. No one has demonstrated that this stuff ha- has changed since. And this is the this is the paper that first demonstrated it. It's, a, it's back a, when psychophysiologists had ideas. It's a it's a very it's a very weird take. So and, and directly equivalent equipment. There's there's almost like there's Jesus. It's like the idea that you know, oh no, they used a grass amplifier. It can't possibly be accurate. Fuck you. It's probably better. It's probably, yeah, I'd say it's probably more accurate. Um, yeah, and they didn't they didn't dress it up with a hundred measurements and a whole bunch of pompous horseshit that they didn't understand about the nervous system. It's all there. To try and make claims about something. Yeah, that's a that's a very strange response. So we have it's all about. Looking- imagine doing that. In, imagine doing that with gross anatomy. You know. <laughs> Like you, like the, you, you, you discover like the the, the brown fat deposition studies. So like, why don't you cite something from last week? Because when they found it, they definitely found it. Yeah, dick bag. That that's where it is. So it's all about looking at the quality of the citations. So if people are still citing this as, as, as still citing the wrong stuff, um, that then maybe it is worth actually going back and retracting this old stuff. But I guess it all comes down to what the nature of the error is. You you, you mentioned this idea of, of Ptolemy. And his idea of, of, of how the planets, um, how the planets orbited. And he was wrong because he was, because he was wrong, not, and because of a, a fundamental error, not because, um, there was any fraud. Or have I got my history wrong? It's. Okay. I'm going from my very heavy duty memory now. And. There very definitely was an issue. Okay. When it came to the early uh the, the early disagreements between heliocentric and geocentric theories. There very definitely was an issue where there were geocentric measurements that were essentially ignoring things that they didn't want to pay attention to. Okay, okay, so there's a bit of bit of uh mm. Okay. I would have to go and read fairly carefully to put a better historical context onto that but that very definitely happened okay well let's and it wasn't it wasn't a matter of the equipment was wrong it was a matter of the equipment was sufficient but the measurements themselves were a little bit annoying so the lily was gilded what i'm trying to get at is that we shouldn't be retracting stuff that's wrong because it was wrong because of a lack of knowledge at the time that's just that's just science science advances people might still cite Stuff that that is incorrect, but we we, we can't go back. So the, the scientific record. No, there's no. The, yeah, there's no real question of of knowing that. I'm I'm thinking largely about. I mean, these are cases of uh, cases of Tom Fuckery that yeah. I'm thinking about. Obviously, yeah. everything's proceeded over time. I mean, there's elements of. Uh, I think there were pieces of heliocentrism where everything was perfectly round. It couldn't explain like planetary wobble. Basically, well, let's talk about um, the idea of punishment of people who are dead. Is it worth you, you touching this idea? Is it worth punishing the dead? Is it worth punishing the dead? <laughs> is their ghost going to haunt you well, while you're you, sitting on the john? What have you done? Oh, that would imagine like the the Hans Eysenck's bent over wizened ghost. 
um, threatening you while you're leafing through the New Yorker. (laughs) 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 All right, so... I've always liked this idea or this um, parallel with with sports doping in that they store Mm -hmm. samples for a long time. The idea is that we don't know what's going to happen in 10 to 20 years when it comes to to error detection. Obviously, things are going to get better and we are going to be able to detect things, hopefully in an automated way, ways in which Mm -hmm. we cannot do now. So I think this idea of, hey, we're still going to go after you, <laughs> even if you're dead. Um, it, it, it could possibly act as a good deterrent. Probably, maybe not. I, I don't know. But my thought is, it could act. It could act as a deterrent if you know, hey, like we're still going to go after you. And two, these methods. Something that we're going to go after you personally is that we're we're going to explore what went wrong. We're going to see what we can learn from the fact that this may not be veridical. Okay. Yeah, we're going to go after you. This this particular work. Not, not, yes. yeah, yeah, that's more what I was trying to get at. I like that idea, and I think that could possibly be a deterrent. Um, but then again, people who do sports doping do not see this as a deterrent, they still do it anyway for the current glory, yeah, even though they know, hey, in five, ten years' time, they're going to reanalyze my sample and um, they're going to see that I was a, I was a cheat. People, people. I, I've, I've seen these surveys of sports people going. Would, would you dope if you knew you wouldn't get found for twenty years? Would you dope? And so many people said yes. They would do it for the glory. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's no, it, not for the. That's, I think if, if there's a place where I mean, usually your analogies are moderately awful. Well, this one's not too bad. But the the place where it falls down is that. The mentality of those people and the mentality of your average academic are extremely different. Why? Um, because in general, Olympians have a very small window to be able to essentially pursue their truly competitive nature. So do academics. Competitive you, people. What? Yeah. You don't get you don't get you don't get the paper. Yeah, you don't get the you don't get the big paper in your postdoc and you don't get a you don't get a, another position. Very short term. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, there's not one gold medal called tenure, Dan. There's, um, there's very few gold medals out there. <laughs> there's not that fucking many more. You ruined my joke there. <laughs> um. <laughs> Mate, there's there's like eight hundred people going for one medal. It's like Takeshi's Castle. Ah, yeah. That show was a beautiful metaphor. That was, that was the first from the modern academia. <laughs> yeah, it was run. It was run stuff. by someone who was utterly ridiculous, who had no intention of participating. Oh, there's an episode and title. People who couldn't explain while they were there fought themselves to a standstill over a prize that was uh, that scarcely mattered anyway, because the whole point was the glorious disaster of getting there. Now, if that isn't a good metaphor for modern science, I don't know what is. Oh. I think we've I think we've ruined our time budget on this. That's one. all right. It's it's our own episode. We can do what we want. It's our podcast. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's true. We can. I'm still interested to hear yours. Um, we didn't mean to make this one long discursive thought about uh when when the boundaries of living knowledge change or when they don't. Um, the, see, the thing is, like, if I ever did another podcast, Dan, it would be. It, it, Probably something that's a lot nicer than this, actually. <laughs> that's that's produced around the idea that all of, all of the really great 
scientific scandals of history and all the like the really high profile retractions, the really big screw ups have amazing stories and no one's ever told them. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes that's it's like a scientific process story, but there's weird characters and there's funny, there's funny shit going on. You know, like the, 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 the point where they figured out the guy had colored in the mouse in Sharpie to try and get the, oh, <laughs> and get the proper code expression. Yeah. Um, and some of them are horrible. Some of them are basically true crime when it comes, when it some comes of them right are actually crimes. They're stealing federal um, money. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, well, that is true. It's just that, um, very, very rarely does, um, anyone actually go to the slam for, uh, or that or anything like it. Um, some are like long triumphs over adversity. Some are things that you never get the answer to. Some are, some of these stories that just that, that that you know like a like cold cases. There's a tremendous parallel between how some of these uh, how some of these stories have played out, and like genres of especially of podcasts that people seem to find really interesting. People will be into that. Uh, I don't know if I ha- ever will have time to make that. And, um, maybe someone else will. Maybe I'll find the time. Maybe someone else will. I don't know. Write, write to me if you think that's a, a good idea for a podcast. <laughs> Actually, write, write to me if you're a biomechanist and you want to come and work for me. <laughs> a job open. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's, that's, that's going well. I'm, I'm now, I'm now hiring people, Daniel, hey. like a big boy. <laughs> You're giving your staff. Don't you already have some staff? Mm. Getting more? Uh, y- yes, more or less. But you know, you know how it goes. Yeah. Um, this is a uh, small, small companies. You know, go. You work for me. It's not academia. Everyone works with and for everyone a lot of the time. So you know, I often find myself doing like background research tasks for uh, other people. Like I need to know this thing. Like I can figure that out better than you. So I'll do it. That's how small companies work. It's nice. Imagine working with a like a a, a, a tenured professor. You're know, like, I don't know the answer to this question. And like, I'll find it out and I'll tell you and get you everything you need to do your job. That's a company. Amazing. That's a, that's a small company, but it's it's all because it's all in the service of us winning. Yeah. There's no me. I'm not more important than other people. No, it's just, it's it's serious. It's a real ethos. I mean, you hear people say it and you go, I'm sure that's bullshit. And there's a, you know, there's uh, this person's working 16 hours and this person's doing the martini lunch. It's not. It's real. It's real. Either we all win or we all lose. And that's all there is to it. It's um actually in many respects, you know, it's the cutthroat corporate competitive environments. It's actually a lot more collaborative you know, than science ever was, which is weird. I'm sure that changes at other organizations. It's just what I found so far. Okay, we'll wrap it up then. Thank you for, for listening for our second episode of uh, of January or for, for the year. And we'll be back again soon with the new episode of Everything Hurts. We absolutely will. 